All right, guys. Back to our big theme here. Um, It's almost like we typically don't associate prophecy with the New Testament, right? Uh, And so we're going to look at that and... So, Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there, uh, I think that's where we're at. Let's see here. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Good. It's good to see everybody. Uh, Anyone want to start us off with any questions or uh, any uh, observations or insights that you all made so far in this study and thinking about the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit in the life of Christ, any questions or things that God has provoked maybe in you? That's like a dangerous question for two reasons. Number one, no one wants to say anything. Number two, you know, it could open up a can of worms that I'm not ready for. So, uh, But I think it's worth it if anyone has anything they wanted to... Any way that this... Uh, that this study has kind of provoked you to think about the spirit differently. Anyone? Anything? Ah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good. So the spirit and eschatology, right? Yeah, that's been an eye-opening statement uh, for me or connection, at least for me. Anybody else? Any questions from last week or week before or anything like that? No? You guys, everyone's good? Wow. Perfect. I'm doing my job then. No questions. Now, I understand that um, uh, it's a lot to think through and uh, certainly a lot of new ground that we're kind of covering that really doesn't get covered a lot. But um, uh, the angelic theophanies, that's really important uh, because if you look at uh, not only this uh, section here in Luke, but then a little bit further down when the angel reappears again, uh, and we're talking about Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, if you look down to verse 27, that's going to be the other one. So it's kind of two passages. I don't think I'll get to the next one. Uh, the first one uh, we're going to deal with has to do with the forerunner. Who is the forerunner? That's right, John the Baptist. And uh, where we're going to go is Malachi chapter 4. So uh, just kind of look to that. But that's really important. Uh, So in Luke's gospel, um, we make this connection only because we understand that uh, the Spirit is, in a sense, it's almost like the Spirit is going to be just thrusting out, you know, John the Baptist. and, And he announces John the Baptist you know, through this angelic theophany. It's like the angel of the Lord shows up here, or an angel of the Lord, this time Gabriel. But uh, that's very significant for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why is, I'm just going to put different terms, remember, but prophecy, uh, prophecy uh, in Israel um, really has not been occurring uh, before this time. Uh, what, what is the time between the last prophet and what we're looking at here with Luke. What is that? 
Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's really good. So, so 400 years, and a lot of people call that 400 years of what? Yes, yeah, so some people say silence, which is what I'm, I'm after. And what is that talking about? Yeah, that's right. And this is also known as the intertestamental. Uh, you get the drift. Intertestamental period. This is between the testaments. And between the testaments, essentially, there was a consensus in Israel. And that is that the Spirit of God was, in a sense, not speaking uh, during this time due to Israel's sin. Uh, and because of Israel's national sins, the Spirit of God simply was unwilling to reveal anything new to the nation. And so that's the kind of consensus, and I have all sorts of rabbinical citations and different things like that that explain that, that very thing. But let me just read this. And Israel's theological consensus was that prophecy had been taken away from Israel due to sin from the time of Malachi to the prophets before him. There was essentially 400 years of silence. This is important, therefore, because... It emphasizes the point that when the Spirit moved upon the individuals leading up to the birth of Christ, so who did he move upon? Who did the Spirit move upon leading up to the birth of Christ? John? John who? A lot of Johns. Okay, John the Baptist. All right, anybody else? Zacharias. Very good. Who's Zacharias? Zacharias is John the Baptist's dad, right? (laughs) <laughs> and who's his mother? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, right? Anyone else that the Spirit moved upon? Mary. So anybody else? Joseph, Simeon, right? Mentioned uh, later on in Luke. So, 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 so look at that. All of a sudden, there's, noth- there's nothing going on in Israel. There's no word from the Lord. 400 years of absolute prophetic silence, and then boom, all of a sudden, God comes in. And matter of fact, this is where the pericope or the paragraph begins. But look at verse 5 because I think the context, the surrounding context uh, of this passage is not insignificant. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, that is, that is biblical parlance, not for sinless perfection, okay? But that's biblical parlance for saying that these, were, these people literally were abiding in the Lord, that they had a general life of adherence to the Torah, that they lived righteously, pious lives, right? And then it says, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Now, let's talk about that right there. Okay, so we come to a person named Elizabeth. And what we know about her is very little. But one thing that the author is very keen to point out right away is that she's barren. Why? Why? Talk to me about barrenness. Um, Not so much in our culture, but in biblical culture. To be barren meant what? What's that? No favor of the Lord? Anybody else? What did barrenness signify? Well, yes, but what did that signify? So no descendants, you had no posterity, which, what's the big deal about that? 
lose your name. So basically your line, right? Your descendants, your posterity, your line, your name was, was ended. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, let's look a little bit over here. Uh, where does it talk about? Um, somewhere here, it talks about, what's the word that is used? Ah, verse 25. When Elizabeth talks about this again, it says, This is the way the Lord dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me with favor. Watch this now. To take away my disgrace among men. So for a woman in biblical culture to be barren was considered a disgrace in the in, in many ways. It was just a, it was a disgrace in that, you know, uh, that, 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 that posterity was a sign of being fruitful and multiplying. Right. So there was fruitfulness. It was a sign of blessing. Uh, when you had descendants, guess what they do to you? They take care of you, <laughs> especially when you get older, right? Like, who's going to take care? I mean, that's practical stuff for us today, right? But back in biblical times, it was multiplied hundredfold. We can't even comprehend. Like today, you know, we have a welfare state, and we have a government that can help us when we get old and stuff. Not back then. It's like, you know, uh, who knows who's taking care of you when you get old? You know, things like that. So uh, questions? Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the vignette in regards to how Rebecca was pretty much ridiculed by Leah for a while until the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I'm going some somewhere with this because it 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 connects us to the theme of barrenness with people who had been barren in the past, right? And why is it important that this woman in Israel be not barren? Why is she singled out as, if she's barren, we have a problem, right? Why? She's the mother of the forerunner. So with, if she doesn't conceive, we're in trouble, right? Who's in trouble? How are we in trouble? In what way? Land, I'll come back to you since you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, fulfill, uh, fulfill, uh, fulfillment of the word of God, right? It's kind of obvious, right? But I, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking in terms of another situation where barrenness was also a big problem, uh, particularly with Abraham. Remember what happened when uh, the angel, ironically enough, an angel also appeared right to Abraham and Sarah and told them what? That they will conceive a son. This time next year, you're going to have a child. Remember? And they laughed. She said, no, I didn't laugh. And the angel said, yes, you did laugh. Right? <laughs> right? And all of that, right? And then in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, the angel says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Right? Now, Look at Luke one thirty seven. Maybe there's a textual link that is making us look at that connection. Because, again, Elizabeth is kind of like a recapitulation of the Sarah episode. She is advanced in age, and she, who was called barren, uh, is now in her sixth month. For, 
Nothing will be impossible with God. And in my Bible, and about yours, my, my little cross-reference goes right back to Genesis 18, 17, or, or, or 14, where Abraham is told that very same thing. What's going on? What's going on is that the barrenness of Elizabeth, like the barrenness of Sarah, represents an antichrist. Finish it for me. Crisis. We cannot stop the promise from coming to pass, right? A promise had been issued forth where? Genesis 3, 15, that a son would come, right? That, that, that a seed would be born, right? And then that, the kernel of that promise by God's sovereign grace, right, was then passed down to another man. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through three in Abraham that in that that he would have many descendants right he would be the father of many nations right and then in Genesis chapter fifteen uh, I guess verses one through eight we can say uh, uh, again uh, he is told that he is going to have a multitude of descendants right and he doesn't believe it he doesn't believe it in a sense because he has no descendants and his wife is barren and he's old and how's this going to come to pass you see. And and what is what turn there real quick. Genesis fifteen. Genesis fifteen. I'm building the case that what we have with the missing of the prophetic word wrought by the Spirit, and then the speech that the Spirit brings forth through the forerunner and through these angelic theophanies, as we'll see, right, is meant so that the people of God will know for certain that the promise of God will come to pass. Remember? And what does Abraham say at 15? Genesis 15, verse 8. What does he say? Somebody read it for me. He said, O Lord God, how many I know that I will... No, no, no. Read it again. How, sorry. He said, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? How may I know? You see that? How do I know for certain that I will possess it. Um, there's another, I'm trying to think of where the connection is. Go back to Luke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where's that at? Where's that at? Um, well, what is it? 118. There it is. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? You see that? So again, it's like they're asking for some sort of prophetic sign how they're going to know for certain that the promises of God are going to come to pass. You see? And so God has to give them a sign. He has to, he has to send them uh, he, uh, uh, a sign. And what he does is he intervenes in redemptive history through this angelic theophany. The angel of the Lord has to show up again, just like he did with Abraham. And he has to assure them of God's word. You see? And, uh, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Pretty amazing, right? Um, <clears throat> Well, theophany is kind of a general way of saying that God shows up, God manifests his glory, right? And sometimes he does that through the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you know what I mean? Uh, And so any angelic appearance is theophanic. So I'm just using that in a general broad sense, okay? 
of some sort of divine manifestation, right? Some sort of supernatural breaking into uh, the laws of physics, you know, breaking into this natural order and disrupting and uh, you know disrupting the natural world, you know, through some sort of divine intrusion into our world. And a lot of times, God does that through angels. So yeah, it's not that the angel is God, but that God through the angel broke in and spoke. Uh, Brian, you had a question, I think. Right. That's right. And so that same connection, it's almost as if he should have believed it, like, and because he didn't, right, then he was, you know, battling until. Yeah. So that that connection between, it wasn't like there's no need for another covenant to be made. The covenant had been made. He should have known that and believed, Mm. you know, what was being. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Consequently, if you look at verse 19, just a little bit of theology of angels, right? It's called angelology. Um, notice what it says there. It says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So he is the, he is the angel of the presence. He stands before the glory presence of God. And what does he say? I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And so angels are often in scripture sent out, delegated on some sort of divine mission to accomplish God's purpose. Uh, you see this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, I think it's in Zacharias where the angels are sent out to pr- patrol the earth to take a consensus of what's going on. And then they report back to heaven what's going on. It's just amazing. Uh, so this, uh, anyway, just this, the delegation of angels for God's covenant purposes, basically, that's ultimately what it is. Uh, and so John's arrival is uh, not insignificant. Uh, John's arrival is a signal that God is moving, in a sense, the prophetic timeline forward, that God has re-initiated uh, the nation of Israel to bring them some sort of eschatological message here at the end of time. And so that's why we need, we need to consider um, John. Let's think about John the Baptist. John's arrival on the scene of redemptive history is not in order to instruct us on piety, even though he was pious, or mysticism found in desert seclusions. I wrote this down. Uh, though he went to the deserts of Judea, or the benefits of living an ascetic life, even though he lived a life of abstinence in many ways. John was neither born to give us principles on evangelism, hold your breath, or lessons on high spirituality or revival. Isn't that what he's used for a lot, though? Like, John is often used to show us, you know, the preaching, the revival preaching, or, you know what I mean, this, like, high spirituality, this, you know, this, 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 this rigorous piety, you know, because what does it say he didn't, he didn't eat, and he didn't, what does it say? Yeah, yeah, he didn't, he didn't drink, Jesus even said, you know, he didn't come eating or drinking, and you said he has a demon, so he had a radical life of piety. Now, can we make deductions uh, on the preaching? of Yes, of course. But I'm trying to emphasize something that we miss the biblical theological point of John's uh, arrival, of John's influence in Scripture when we start making these immediate John the Baptist personal applications. We miss the whole reason why he's here. 
right? He's not here to show us how to be radical, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Any questions about this? Anyway, I was having so much fun writing that down. I was like, that's, I like that because we, we make that kind of connection too, too much. Um, instead, um, his arrival was the Spirit's prophecy that the shepherd of the sheep had arrived. Here, turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. And then also you're going to want to put your finger on uh, Isaiah 40. The first Malachi chapter 4. Isn't it amazing, though, how our New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament are organized so that it's kind of like you leave off, right, the last book of the Old Testament with Malachi. And what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about uh, look at uh, look at uh, chapter three first, I guess. Uh, chapter three says, "Behold, I'm going to send my messenger." This is interesting. Who's the messenger? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Yes. Now, yeah, the 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 Hebrew word malak, angel, uh, is the word that's used there. But here, it's obviously being used uh, in, in, to speak of a of a person, right? Uh, I will send my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. Now, notice how Yahweh is speaking here in the first person. Right? So if you want a deity passage, right? So this is Yahweh saying the angel will clear the way for me. So, I mean, who, who did the angel clear the way for? Well, Christ. Well, of course, well, Christ is Yahweh. I mean, what's the, what other conclusion can you come to? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Oh, I, li- I like that. Watch this now. And the messenger of the covenant, literally the Malak Barit, the angel of the covenant, he says, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So it's like the last book of the Old Testament leaves us with this grand anticipation, anticipating some sort of end time arrival of the Lord into his temple with some sort of covenantal purpose. And what is it? Well, we know because we're standing on this side of the cross. We understand what it means now. But when these prophecies were being unleashed, it was God's promise to come and shepherd his people. Now, turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, relaying this language to the forerunner. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming... uh, will be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so it's like a total desolation of the wicked. But for you who fear my name, watch this now, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The sun, that's the dawn of the Son of God. And that, that, actual, uh, that actual reference is actually mentioned in Luke. We'll see that. It says, um, and you will go forth and skip about like calves in the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet uh, on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, just read it. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him in Horeb uh, for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great terrible day of the Lord. Wow, that's a very interesting night. So day of the Lord. Don't forget about the day of the Lord. Day of, uh, I'll just put Lord. Okay, you fill it in. Uh, the day of the Lord, because that's a critical, theologically loaded uh, phrase. We're even seeing it there in, uh, uh, in, in Thessalonians. Why? Why is that so important, you guys? 
Because the day of the Lord, it like progresses, okay? So let me, let me go back to this again. Day of the Lord. I have to read fine print too, okay? So day of the Lord. Where's the first day of the Lord? Well, it's primal. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Where's Gen- Genesis chapter 3, verse 8? That is when God comes in the spirit of the day. Genesis chapter, right? And he comes with judgment to judge the man, to judge the woman, to judge the serpent. And so I uh, take the interpretation that uh, when it says God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that the cool of the day is actually not in the Hebrew text. That is an interpretation of what that possibly means there in the Hebrew text. And I think it's apocalyptic. It's for judgment. It's not God just like whistling. See, I... That's the image I got from the first time I read this is I thought that was God like taking a nice leisurely stroll, right? And then he discovers the fall. Oh, (laughs) what did you do? You know, I didn't know what you guys did, right? So I I don't think so. You know, I think it was windy. I think it was stormy looking. I think it was, you know, uh, judgment, right? It's uh, something was wrong with creation. The animals weren't acting right. Everything was bad at that moment. Fear gripped the animals and the, pe- and the people of the realm. And then God shows up with a covenant indictment. What have you done? Have you broken my law? Have you broken my covenant? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Right? All of that. Right? So, so that's what happens there. Then you have the day of the Lord that comes again in different episodes. So, so for example, like um, you have like... Babylon, right? The day of the Lord comes in Babylon uh, through the exile, through the restoration, all of that. And then you have it at the, uh, the first, let's say, advent, advent of Christ. When Christ comes, it's the day of the Lord. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of judgment. He pronounces judgment on the wicked and all of that. But uh, the second advent is the consummate day of the Lord. Right? So the day of the Lord comes in full consummation at the end of time when he actually does wipe out the wicked once for all. Any questions about this at all? Any questions? But anyway, you can, I mean, I just thought about how important the day of the Lord is. And that's something that you can pick up any, uh, you guys should own Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries, particularly those from IVP. Okay, you need those. You, you got to have those. Okay, uh, you need to get uh, the IVP dictionaries uh, on the Bible. Also, you also need to get the International uh, Encyclopedia of of the Bible, uh, edited by uh, uh, I think it's Bromley. Uh, I think it's four or five volumes or something like that. Uh, and those encyclopedic uh, works, you look up a pa- you look up a theme like the Day of the Lord, and they just give you a an amazing outline of how to understand comprehensively to wrap your whole mind around something like the day of the Lord, right? And they show you like the day of the Lord language from its earliest times to its total, you know, fulfillment. Um, uh, So yeah, so look at verse five uh, back in Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Wow, isn't that, that's like fascinating because um, it's almost like that's the only way that the ultimate judgment of God is going to be averted. So back in Luke chapter 1, welcome Steve, to see you, Leslie. 
Bless you guys. Um, uh, Steve and Leslie are uh, missionaries in Chile. So uh, I've known Steve for a while now, wonderful brother, and uh, he's doing amazing stuff over there. Uh, I could just go on and on about your ministry if you'd like. Let me just go back to this. Okay. <laughs> Luke chapter 1. Uh, you see the exact um, quotation here in Malachi in, in our text here in Luke Luke chapter uh, 1 uh, in verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So it's almost like what's the deal with the hearts of the fathers and the, and the children and, and all of that, right? Well, just kind of emphasizing the need for healing in the covenant community. The covenant community is ruined, you guys. At this time, Israel is apostate in the sense, right? Much of it. I mean, look at what Jesus does in the temple. Because how bad is it right now in Israel? Talking about in Jesus' time. It's so bad that Jesus goes to the temple, the holiest place in the world. And what are people doing? They're conniving. They're thieves. They're swindling people out of money at the temple. They're stealing people's money. I mean, think about it. It's just gone. It's gone. They've just mer- they just commercialized the work of the Lord, you know. And, uh, and Jesus uh, goes to uh, uh, stir up a trouble there, you know. And, uh, no, it's a covenant indictment is what he's doing. He's overturning their tables to, to-, to show them that they're covenant breakers. And so, and so here, comes, uh, you know, here comes John the Baptist, and he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know, some people ask, like, was this whole controversy, like, is John the Baptist a, sort of a reincarnation? Of course not. He's not Elijah again. He's just, he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, in a sense, with his prophetic mantleship, right, with his ministry. And so uh, let me say this, uh, what's going on here, okay? Because I think there's something much more eschatologically profound happening when you consider Elijah and John or we could call Elijah too, right? Don't make fun of that. Huh? (laughs) That's what it says, right? Anyway. uh, So, Elijah 1 is relaying to the promise. Right? Let me see what I wrote here. Oh, yes. Prophecy. uh, Right? Uh, What else? Um, Ah, yeah. So, and then he is the, uh, he, in talking, he's coming with the powers. And with, uh, uh, and he's also, uh, oh, yeah. And then he points. You guys know how I like to alliterate, right? He points to, let's just make it short, John, who's the forerunner, right? That's what he does. And then what is John? Well, John is all fulfillment, (laughs) right? So he lives in the, he is in the realm of fulfillment, right? Is that, I don't know, something like that. And uh, um, he fulfills, what does he fulfill? He fulfills the promise of his coming. He fulfills prophecy. Uh, he comes in the powers, right? Oh man, I, I really can't write today. I didn't drink enough coffee. I literally, I'm just trying to cover. I'm out of time. He comes in the powers, and then uh, he is the forerunner, right? Forerunner. There goes my so much for my alliteration. What is it? Okay, I'm glad y'all can spell because I can't. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? So at another level, what kingdom did Elijah belong to? Anybody know what kingdom Elijah belonged to? Israel. Shout it out, brother. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to say something wrong. Uh, Israel. He belongs to the kingdom of Israel during what time? Huh? Old Testament, right? And we looked at this last time, a little controversial, but what is the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament? The kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament belongs to the typology of the kingdom. Okay, guys? This is huge. Because what Elijah did typologically, John does in reality. Okay? So now John, John is not following in the same typological path as Elijah. Now he comes with the anti-typical uh, reality, uh, typal, right? The reality of what? The reality of the kingdom, right? Uh, the kingdom of God. Here, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Um, um, excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, What? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is what's really uh, controversial among theologians is when John the Baptist is heralding the, the kingdom of heaven, I think he's doing two things. I think he's, I think he's uh, organically connecting us to the kingdom theology of the Old Testament. Absolutely, right? But the, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is not found in the Old Testament. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. The closest you get, I have the verses, Chronicles. Let me read you some of these. First, See, in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Yahweh, and the kingdom of Yahweh is majestic and eternal, and it is glorious. And listen to what it says. But I will settle in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Uh, Psalm 103 Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 145, verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. First, uh, uh, Psalm 145, verse 12, to make known the sons of men, your, might, your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So all these kingdom passages, but not the kingdom of heaven. So John, I think, in announcing the kingdom of heaven is announcing the arrival of the antitype that was Israel. I, you know, we talked about this last time. I can remove all of this, but um, I think this is verse 17. But we talked about how, you know, typology is very important for your hermeneutics. And I think... The entire Old Testament is overlaid with typology. And so what do we have in the typological sense in the Old Testament? Well, the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is typological. The temple uh, is typological. Uh, the, the priesthood uh, uh, is typological. You guys fulfilling this in your mind, right? Uh, uh, the sacrificial system 
Sacrifice is all typological. Everything in the Old Testament is typological. You see? Nothing is meant to be taken to its ultimate literal, in, in the literal sense. Uh, and I pick on these guys a lot because they're, they're easy to pick on, but this is the problem with theonomy. Theonomy insists on a literal kingdom now. Right? They want to see a return to the theocracy. So they want a theocracy, and they want a theocracy uh, literally fulfilled here and now. What they're saying is that the literal kingdom of the Old Testament has to be literally brought into the New Covenant, New Testament time. That is false. That misses the entire purpose of what the kingdom represented. The kingdom was just a, uh, the, the Old Testament kingdom was just typological ultimately of heaven. Of what? Of the kingdom of heaven. It's not, it's not pointing towards another earthly institution of the same type of kingdom. No mas. Uh, so in the same way, we are no longer looking for another architectural temple to be built because that too pointed to a future temple. We are no longer looking for a reinstitution of the Levitical priesthood because that priesthood pointed to a spiritual priesthood. Um, what does Peter say? First Peter chapter, what is it? Chapter two, verses nine through 10, right? Yeah, something like that. You know, a, a royal priesthood, right? Kingdom of priests is Revelation five, nine through 10. And that's also, you can see the typology of that, you know, like in Exodus chapter 9, verse 6, you know, that's where it talks about, like, the whole design of the priesthood, even from the beginning. Uh, This is when the Jews are transitioning out of Egypt. They don't even have a Levitical system yet, and, and they're heading towards the promised land in Canaan. And even from its founding, God is telling them that what I want to install is a, is a, is a, um, is a, is a, what is it? A kingdom of priests, right? And what's that signifying? Well, that's not signifying, you know, when we get to the reality, to the antitype, more of the same. That's signifying a much more spiritual, salvific dynamic, okay? Same thing with the sacrifice. Like the sacrifices were just pointing to the greater sacrifice. And, uh, and therefore, all the typical, the typical aspects of this, if you look at Hebrews, for example, Hebrews chapter, oh man, I always forget. I think it's Hebrews chapter 8. No, Steve would know. Steve, you taught Hebrews in Chile. Um, ah, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. You guys, somebody read that real quick. How, how mammoth. For the one concerning whom these things were spoken. That's a good one too, though. Yeah, that's right. So the entire old, old covenant order is disappearing, uh, not because there was anything wrong with it. It wasn't deficient in the sense of, you know, there wasn't anything ethically wrong with it or morally wrong with it. It wasn't, it wasn't that God made a mistake. It's that God gave on the typological level. He gave that which was sufficient to accomplish his purpose at an earthly, at an earthly level, right, at a typical temporal level. But when the antitype arrives, all of that typological uh, uh, surface level uh, stuff, it, it fades off. It's kind of like the scaffolding, you see? It's like the scaffolding. Here's the true building, and then there's scaffolding around it that was used to kind of lay the, the groundwork. But when that building is built, what do you do with the scaffolding? It's gone. Get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. Now you have the reality. You guys know. 
That's an R and an E and an A. <laughs> you have the reality of it. And uh, John is part and parcel of that. Um, man, there's so much here. Theonomy. So I was making a I was making a uh, connection to the the theology that's known as theonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, theonomy reconstructionists. These are people that would say the Christian the obligation of the Christian Church is to so be engaged in the culture so as to bring all cultures and governments under the Ten Commandments under the law of Moses. Uh, it was Greg Bonson who said in his book by what standard. He wrote a very famous book called By What Standard, which was his, like his the- Theonomy Manifesto, where he says that he believed in an exhaustive application of the Old Covenant law. Exhaustive. He even argued for some sort of implementation of the dietary laws, that somehow the dietary laws could still be... <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't believe it unless I read it, you know what I mean? Like, he, he, that, to that degree. Uh, and so that is covenant theology run awry. That is, you know, like on the spectrum of theology, right? We've done this before. Is this helpful or not? Just tell me if it's not helpful. But uh, like on the spectrum of theology, here's the middle ground, the perfection. That's where I'm at. (laughs) But, you know, on the spectrum of theology, you know, you have like discontinuity, uh, right? And then you have continuity. And what we're talking about here is continuity between the old, uh, let's just say, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We don't want to say Testament because that would be inaccurate, right? But in, in terms of continuity, discontinuity, uh, you have different groups that fall along the line here, you know? Total continuity would be like Zionism, right? Uh, theonomy, you know, in a sense, would be there. Um, you know, covenant theologians would be, you know, uh, more on this side, you know. Covenant theologians, they would see a, a less of a continuity in one sense between the old and the new. Uh, what? Covenant theology, also uh, uh, new covenant theology. Yeah, they would also, you know, see less, less continuity between old and new. Yeah, New Covenant Theology is, there's a lot of good people in New Covenant Theology. Uh, Piper, uh, as far as I know, uh, guys like D.A. Carson, um, Doug Moo wrote a really good commentary on Romans. You know, but they would, they would argue, uh, Charles Leiter, you guys know who Charles Leiter is? Yeah, he kind of has a lot of local effect on people. He was kind of running with Paul Washer for a while. I don't know where Paul Washer's at on, on on any of this stuff, but but I know that Charles Leiter in his book, for example, to show you the the, the discontinuity of New Covenant theology, uh, they would say like you can't use the Ten Commandments in evangelism. So they would say like the Ten Commandments was only for Israel, and because it was only for Israel, it doesn't apply to the rest of the world. And so what do you do then? <laughs> what they say was well, we're in the New Covenant now, and so in the New Covenant, all we do is point people to Jesus. Some dispensational theologians fall in this category too, right? They would also, not as maybe for different reasons, but they would also kind of uh, uh, have that view of the law, you know, that the law is not as 
uh, pertinent to New Covenant believers as it once was. So you have this spectrum here, guys, and, um, you know, there's a lot. Presbyterians? Well, it just depends what kind of Presbyterian. You can be Presbyterian and be into New Covenant theology. You can be Covenant theology, Presbyterian. I don't know. It just depends. Most Presbyterians are just going to be kind of classic Covenant theology. Uh, So, whoa. Any questions? We're almost out of time. Questions? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. If the middle of the line means that uh, you have a, uh, you try to have a balanced approach or a biblical approach, right? Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, for example, I, I guess I'm I'm aligned with covenant theologians on a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? I'm I'm not Presbyterian, so I'm Baptist. Um, but I, <laughs> so you know, yeah, man, I. I, I definitely believe in the th- you know threefold use of the law according to Reformed theology. I think the law still has a good uh, moral influence on the believer today. I don't think it's obsolete, the ten, like the Ten Commandments. I think the Ten Commandments, you know, just like the reformers taught, you know, the Ten Commandments is absolutely vital for evangelism. We should use it to show man their guilt and their sin. You know, I think we're still obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, except for maybe the fourth. I'm not a Sabbatarian. So I think that the fourth commandment had a ceremonial character, right? Which is kind of different. Uh, huh? Agreed. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. That's, that's kind of like, I've read so many books, but just to give you guys some inside scoop on that again. But theologians, some, some of them say, like the, bap, the Sabbath issue, that's kind of the issue. Like that's what separates a lot of theology. You know what I mean? Like where you land on the Sabbath. You know, if you're a Sabbatarian, in other words, you believe that Sunday... Or maybe Saturday. But let's say you believe in what is what some theologians call the Christian Sabbath. That's in the uh, Westminster Confession. That's in the London Baptist Confession. And what they're saying is that Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath. And that the day of the Lord, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, that the day of the Lord is a reference to Sunday. So when John says, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, right? Or, excuse me, on the Lord's day, that what... Uh, John was saying is that he was somehow in some sort of visionary state on Sunday. I, I, that's not the position I take, but um, but but then they, they would also point to the fact that um, the first day of the week is the day of the resurrection, which is a Sunday, and so all worship moved from Saturday, Sabbath day, to Sunday, the day that the Christ rose from the dead, the first day of the week, and so now we have now we celebrate that all important day of rest on Sunday, not Saturday. And so that's like a, it's like a redux of the Sabbath, okay? Uh, our church was planted because we split over the Sabbath issue with a uh, previous church. I'm not a Sabbatarian. I, I don't think it's a tenable position. I don't think that we can legislate what you do on Sunday. I just don't believe it. Uh, matter of fact, in my old church, it got so bad that the men in the congregation were starting to ask, can we set up tables and chairs on Sunday? Because that's br- I'm not, not even joking you. And then people started kind of judging each other for whether or not you went to a restaurant after church, whether or not you watched sports after church. Some of our most faithful members in our church, I remember, Chris remembers, they had to work on Sunday. <laughs> they come to church all day, labor, they serve, they, they, they're, they're doing everything that God, you know, and then they have to go to the night shift. So what do we make of that? Like, you know, it, it's just... Um, it's just not tell. So I, be- I have more of a fulfillment view of the Sabbath. I think the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. 
It's not the day that you rest, but the way that you rest. You rest salvifically, redemptively in Christ. Uh, and I take that from Hebrews chapter 4, which I read Hebrews chapter 4. And it, I did a lot of study in Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, when the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 9, that there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, John Owen in his commentary in Hebrews actually argued that Hebrew, the author of Hebrews was talking about Sunday. I was just like, he's not talking about Sunday. In the context, he's talking about obtaining the promised land. You know, that which uh, uh, Joshua was not able to fully, you know, deliver, that was going to come through the greater Joshua, which is Christ. Yes, sir? Yep. Yeah, Galatians 4.10 is important because there, I mean, he very much... You know, equates the days, right? What does it say there? You know, uh, if you go back to observe days and months, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's pre- according to most commentaries there, he's referring to the Jewish calendar, which would include the Sabbath. So if you go back, like so many Christians do, you know, we talked about this before, but some Christians they want to celebrate the feasts and the, the new moons and the Sabbaths, right, and all this stuff, you know, for other reasons. But you know. Um, I just don't think that's the way. So, uh, last word, I guess, on John the Baptist is that John the Baptist is uh, sent forth by the Spirit of God in order to announce the coming of the Messiah. And as he does that, he is um, he is announcing a whole new age. Matter of fact, I would say he is announcing the end of the age. He's announcing the end times, that this is the end of days. These are the latter days. And um, I think the I think the the latter days or the end times are from the time of Jesus to the second re- to the return of Christ, uh, and that's what he's announcing. It makes sense because in Luke one one it says, "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us." Now that word that uh, Luke uses there, "accomplished," uh, is a word that can actually be translated "fulfilled." So I think we're in the age now of fulfillment. And John the Baptist is the first marker, the first indicator that that has come. And so, Lord willing, next week we'll talk about another angelic theophany. And that this time it's going to be the angel of the Lord, uh, Gabriel, who will uh, announce the birth of Christ. Wow. And what he announces there. Uh, I can't go there. We're late. So I can't, I can't. I wanted to say something, but I can't. So love you guys. Please write down your questions. If you have questions, come back. Uh, even if you don't think they, they're pertinent, there are no dumb questions. I just had a conversation with uh, certain people on this, and there are no questions that are out of bounds or dumb or unwelcome. Please ask your questions, write them down, and uh, Lord be with you.